I didn't ask how many golf balls you can fit in a jumbo jet boat. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. I was going to say, like, I know it's a fairly entry-level job, but how did Jeff Fisher's interview go? <laughs> So hello and welcome to All Four Quarters, your one-stop shop for news, views and overreactions to all things NFL. This week we'll be taking you news from all around the league, then looking at the uh, wildcard round games, uh, taking some questions from you, the listener, and then looking forward to the divisional championship games. Woo! So hey guys, we've got Connor here, we've got Harry. Hey. And we got Fitz. Hello. Hey, that's so lads, how he's getting on? Any crack? Yeah, grand. I've uh, been doing some more stuff in work now, interviewing people and things, which is uh, interesting, being on the other side of the table uh, from where I usually am. So that's been a sort of bit of an eye-opener, which uh, is kind of cool. Also, like, you're like, oh, I've got all the power now. I can ask you whatever I want. Does it make you look at interviews a bit differently now? Um, a little bit, yeah. I think you, you, it's really useful to get more of an insight into the kind of thing they're actually looking for and just how they really, like, really do pick up on the smallest stuff. It's very uh. disconcerting, actually, in some ways. I didn't ask how many golf balls you can fit in a jumbo jet boat. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. I was going to say, like, I know it's a fairly entry-level job, but how did Jeff Fisher's interview go? <laughs> poorly. <laughs> Very poorly. <laughs> yeah, he still gets the job. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the problem. Uh, what about yourself? Fits any crack down in Cork? Uh, no, it's quite enough to just, you know, keep tipping away at the two big projects at work. Otherwise, keeping it pretty quiet. Although I... Uh, uh, very was very much in the Guardian reader mode and ended up going to see uh, I Dagnall Blake in like the local the either kind of uh, old converted church. Christmas. Oh wow, nerd! Wow, wow, getting full on hipster down in Cork. So that's Guardian, you know. Anyway, <laughs> <It is>, uh, <laughs> oh, did you feel it's all a wove a compelling narrative? Yeah, very very compelling. You know, fucking Tories, fuck them guys. You know. Oh, that's that is compelling. Yeah, when you put it that way, that's, <laughs> that's I'm, I'm compelled. I found it interesting because there was a guy who, when I was in college, I was on the Law Stock Committee and there was a chap there called Daniel Blake and he's very much the opposite end of the spectrum to a uh, homeless guy. I was like, I, Daniel Blake, I saw the thing and I was like, wow, he's really falling on hard times. His <laughs> <laughs> corporate law wasn't for him. But uh, yeah, we've got, actually, we've got a shitload to get through, uh, even though, let's be honest, it wasn't a, uh, an incredibly exciting slate of games that we saw on the weekend. But uh, lots of news from Atlanta League, so we'll launch straight into it, I suppose. Jags fired a new head coach, Doug Marone, uh, and they're bringing in Tom Coughlin to work as VP of football, I think it is. Um, so basically the GM and the scouting and everything will be reporting to him, and there's also reports that potentially Marone will be reporting into him rather than to the GM as well, which would be quite an interesting fuck-up. It seems to be... Teams who are not doing so well are just trying out new forms of management entirely, as the Browns did last year. Um, so what do we reckon about this? Uh, is this good hirings, uh, and will it work? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Bringing back Coughlin, I think, was something that's been kind of on the cards for a while. Um, you could tell they were a bit leery about giving him back the reins as a head coach after how things have been going, um, making him the, the vice president of football operations, or whatever, they, whatever title they've given him. It'll be interesting to see how much power he uh, actually exercises in that role, how much he influences things behind the scenes, because if, as you say, he's essentially got everyone really on the football side of things reporting into him, that's potentially an awful lot he can do. And it will be, particularly if things go poorly, which being Jacksonville, we can reasonably assume that they might, whether or not we see sort of the kind of personnel decisions becoming uh, a conflict between him, uh, whoever is acting as the GM, and... Uh, Marone. Now, Marone himself, it's, uh, it's a stable enough pick, I guess. He's, he's, he's a solid, solid hand. His last job went reasonably well, all things considered, uh, although he left it in strange fashion, shall we yeah. say. 
But this is a stability choice for Jacksonville, which kind of makes sense after trying to go down the more young, exciting route with Gus Bradley, and that didn't didn't quite work out for them. Uh, what will be interesting, of course, is to see where this leaves them, in particularly in terms of the quarterback. We know that Marone has been told that he's not necessarily married to Blake Bortles, so it'll be interesting to see who they bring in or if they try to draft somebody else to replace him. And again, because that, that's the kind of and who who basically takes responsibility for that decision, whether that decision falls on Marone, uh, falls on the GM, falls on Coughlin. That's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, because if that goes sour, that's the sort of thing that could cause problems. And I know it's it's very easy to just be like, here are all the things that could go wrong with it. But in fairness, we've seen that for all the problems, Shag Khan has been a reasonably uh, patient owner. He's been willing to give a lot of time, sometimes too much time, to personnel, to coaches, to his, his management staff. I think that there's no need to take that worst case scenario that I'm talking about. But I think that there's a lot of sort of, shall we say, temperamental personalities involved in this at the moment. So it's going to be up to the ownership, I think, to keep sort of a steady hand on all of that. But as it stands, I think it's a solid move from Jacksonville. I think they certainly could have done a lot worse out of this. The only interesting thing to see, to see will be how the dynamic uh, works out between all of the various sort of new roles, as you say, yeah. they've created. No, of course. There's been clear in a lot of other places as well. Uh, new Orleans and Washington, to mention one or two. But uh, in terms of the Jets, Chan Gailey is retired and five assistants have uh, have disappeared or left. Is this the kind of change, we discussed this before, Ronan, that the Jets probably need to just start looking at a full rebuild mode? Is this the start of that? Well, yeah, like I think to a certain extent it's that, but I also think it's to a certain extent it's Todd Bowles. Like Todd Bowles recognised if he has another season like this season, he's probably on the way out. So I imagine he's kind of doing a complete redirect of the team and trying to bring up people who are perhaps more uh, consistent with his view. Like the primary reason Chan Gailey stayed, like, was there is because he's apparently he was usually quite good with Ryan Fitzpatrick. Now that didn't work very well this year, but like Chan Gailey, very respected coach, but he wasn't Todd Bowles' guy. This is the guy who's basically been an OC for hire for a while now. Uh, and I think like Todd Bowles is going to make some interesting moves. I think it's like, like Todd Bowles is a coach that people respect, but um, I think the results are where it matters. And I think he's a defensive coach, so I think maybe like when you're looking at the defensive coordinator, they're going to wield a lot of influence on that team. So I think it's, it's an intriguing one because there's certainly talent there. But so the big question mark about them is if they bring in an OC, is it someone you want who's good at mentoring a quarterback? Because the expectation is is that they're probably going to have to go quarterback in the draft considering the positive talent there. So, you know, I think it's an interesting thing. And I think John Gailey, like, he, he's, he has a good reputation in terms of being an OC. I, I don't know if it'll be better, but in terms of bringing a quarterback along, John Gailey may, may not be the perfect person considering he was obviously considering retirement in the first place. Yeah, no, of course. We've also had New Orleans, Washington, Cleveland have all done kind of quite sizable clear-out jobs. New Orleans get rid of their assistant head coach, linebacker coach uh, Joe Vitt, uh, special teams and D-line coach, and a few others. And the Zungus get rid of defense coordinator Joe Barry and also the D-line coach and uh, DC coaches. Cleveland have cleared out as well on the defensive side of the board. Brought in Greg Williams and Pep Hamilton <laughs> is expected to disappear. So I, I can hear you laughing already. Do you want to discuss uh, the movement just, in Cleveland? Just Greg Williams, like... <laughs> I understand the principle behind the move. It's like, look, we have a, you know, we have talented players on defense. We have Danny Shelton, presumably they're going to try to bring back Jamie Collins. Chris Kirksey is pretty good. Joe Hayden is fine if they don't decide to move on from him. Um, and the idea is get somebody who has an established reputation for running organized defenses, for running swarming powerful defenses. The problem is that, that even with that sort of talent, like Greg Williams' defenses in in LA were frail. They tended to fall to pieces. There was real problems in the defensive backfield. 
during the whole tenure there, which has been a significant problem for Cleveland. Like, it's not like he can just bring Aaron Donald with him or find another Aaron Donald. This is a weird move um, because Greg Williams' stock is not high right now. I'm not sure that this is the kind of move that's going to kickstart them. They clearly think it is. There's clearly some logic behind it being like, this is a guy who has proven himself, but it's also a guy who has like, not produced those sort of historic defenses for a long, long time, uh, like he was able to do with the way, well, I mean, <laughs> aside from all of the uh, issues surrounding in New Orleans, it was a very good defense at the time. I'm a little bit baffled by that one, to be honest. It's a very Brownsy move. Um, maybe it will work out, but it just seems to me like more kind of a name being pulled in and a guy who they think might you know, be able to stamp some authority on the team rather than actually looking at the scheme or the personnel uh, or the attitude that might actually come as part of that. As for Pep Hamilton, like Pep Hamilton has uh, really just sort of ruined himself over the last few years between Indianapolis and yeah, and he's here. expected to ship back to college now, which is probably the best spot for him at least for a year or two to try and regain a bit of yeah, ab- yeah. absolutely try and get a bit of cash back because but, it hasn't. It's been a rough rough ride for Pep over the last little while. But yeah, so you'll say like there's there's been a lot of moves. We're going to see more and more of these over the next couple of weeks, and then we're going to start seeing this settling down. There's already a lot of interviews happening. Uh, around the league with lots and lots of people uh, there is a discussion we'll probably have on a later podcast about uh, we've had a couple of questions in from listeners about should coaches not be allowed to interview for other positions while their teams are still playing in playoffs and things like this um, but as I said this is something we'll be covering over the next couple of weeks is it Andy Lynn is apparently in line to interview with four teams yeah that's weird like it's <laughs> that's really weird Wait, he still has a job that's weird <laughs> <laughs> oh my and there's yeah, that, now that Jeff Fisher's fired Doug Whaley is now my new punching bag so, <laughs> so I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll move on from uh, from the coaching we'll come back to this over the next couple of weeks because uh, there's going to be a lot of movement happening players in the offseason doing bad things Randy Gregory has been suspended indefinitely for the substance abuse policy uh, he's gone for at least a year. This is the one where there is no definite end. He has to apply for reinstatement. Uh, we got to presume this is him. He's gonna. They're gonna cut ties with him in the off season, and he's right. You would. You would assume so. Uh, this is kind of the sad one. Obviously, the, the problems Randy Gregory has had, and this is like this was a, one of those sort of red flags in inverted commas coming out of college to do with his substance abuse problems and his mental health problems. And you know, it's it's a real shame that this has happened. But but sometimes some people just don't have they, they don't have the right mental approach and they can't get themselves into the right headspace yeah. to commit uh, the way they should and unfortunately it looks like what's happened here to what was potentially a very exciting and, and very talented young player mm. um, you've got to assume Dallas will move on but then again Greg Hardy yeah it's true they uh, they don't have the greatest track record of uh, managing these types of situations uh, but maybe it's not just the players maybe it's learned from the coaches as well because uh, Pittsburgh's outside linebacker coach Joey Porter has been in a bit of trouble. Uh, he's been arrested on multiple charges uh, for essentially manhandling some policemen. So Fitz, do you want to tell us a bit about what's been going on with Joey Porter? Like it, it's hard not to go all <laughs> the way back to, to last season, the uh, the wildcard round between Cincinnati and Pittsburgh, where Joey Porter was on the field getting into trouble with Pac-Man Jones. And obviously we saw last week uh, Pac-Man has got mm. his own legal issues going on now. Um, obviously he's, he's quite well liked in in Pittsburgh because he's a former player there, quite well known. But he, he might have taken on a little bit too hard the the kind of Pittsburgh way of uh, <laughs> a little bit uh, a little bit rough around the edges. Uh, apparently, like the rap sheet is pretty extensive and relates to uh, some activities he was involved in in the nightclub at the time. Basically, uh, it doesn't look good for him. He's been put on leave, so I would not be surprised if he's back to be let go at some point during the uh, during the off season. Probably when, you know, maybe around the draft where, where it wouldn't make up as much news. The rap sheet's pretty bad, so I think 
you know, uh, this may be the end of the road for, you know, someone who obviously was liked by the management and obviously had a lot of cachet within the team. But that doesn't really count for much if you can't keep your head on your shoulders. To be fair, as a coach, he has been learning from a head coach who literally gone onto the field and tripped players up before. So yeah, he didn't assault a bouncer. That's true. It's that's a nice true. throwback, though, isn't it? You know, to, to <laughs> age gone by. We've got Pac-Man Jones and Joey Porter getting arrested within a week of each other. Oh yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the it's the off season of yesteryear. <laughs> um, the Steelers, speaking of the Steelers, have decided they're going to well, they've announced they're going to use the tag on Le'Veon Bell, which is an interesting decision. Now, I believe the tag for running back is currently quite low. But you see the performance he had this weekend. We'll talk about it later on and throughout the back end of the season. you got to imagine they want to lock him down for more than a year. Is it just injury concerns and the fact that he's had a suspension or two that they're worried about? It could be, and that could be to do with the negotiating position that Bell's basically taken on the basis of, look at how good I am, and the team are more like, well, yeah, but... What if you, you know? What if you piss on again? Mm. What if you get stoned again? It could be one of those ones where they use the tag and then sort of we see a long-term deal being worked out during the year. While that's going on, I imagine that's what Pittsburgh would want to do and sort of buy themselves more negotiating time. Mm. Um, in terms of that, if uh, financially obviously makes sense because Bell is going to come out of an awful lot more money in a contract than he will, as you say, the tag being quite low for running backs. God, the other thing they're really going to want to sort out because Bell, if he leaves after, you know, if they can't keep him pinned down yeah. in the tag, that's a huge part of that team gone. I mean, you know, Roethlisberger isn't isn't a spring chicken anymore. Also, it's, it's what it's it's a first round pick to take someone who's got. Talent. Tagged, is it or is there no option? Two first round picks, I believe. Two first. All oh, right, that's probably a little bit too much. Because yeah. I was saying he's got the kind of talent level I could see teams giving up a first round pick to get him if they could. Cleveland. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Definitely do that. That'd be amazing. Yeah, Cleveland. Like, and it'd also be two figures to a divisional rival. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like there, there, there is a strong chance that this is just the first step on a off-season long negotiation that they're just trying to put pressure on. But um, like, we'll see how it goes. It does like it doesn't seem to make sense on the face of it, but we'll we'll, we'll see. Yeah, well, we have seen also, like, during the last few years, Bell complaining about his salary on social media. So clearly there is obviously some divide to be bridged between what the team wants and what he wants there. Mm. He is a very valuable, and as we're seeing in the last couple of games, an increasingly, increasingly valuable piece of that offense. Um, we'll talk more about that, obviously, as we get into the offseason. I'm sure they're trying to try and keep discussion of this to a minimum while they're still in the playoffs. Hall of Fame finalists were announced. I'll just run through them very quickly because we're going to go into them in depth on a later podcast. We've got LaDainian Tomlinson, uh, Jason Taylor, Brian Dawkins, Morton Anderson, Tony Buscelli, Isaac Bruce, Don Coriel, uh, Terrell Davis, Alan... Faneca. I always get his surname wrong. Uh, Joe Jacoby, Ty Law, John Lynch, Kevin Moisey, Terrell Owens, and Kurt Warner. Is there anyone you want to kind of chat about here? Anyone you think you've been left off that maybe should be on there? I, I'll, I'll save my Steve Task around for later <laughs> in the year. <laughs> uh, yeah, you didn't mention also uh, uh, Jerry Jones is also. He's up for the contributor. He is, and so is former Commissioner Paul Noggin to try to pronounce that. Spaghetti Boy. Yeah, Paul Tagliatelli. Yeah. Uh, I think the seniors committee one is uh, Kenny Easley. Oh, okay. uh, I always find it a bit weird when people are still active or nominated. Even yeah, contributors it's very just... strange. Like um, maybe maybe they're just gonna go. Well, if we give it to him, maybe he'll fucking retire. Jerry's never retiring. It's like, it's like Stephen in the back room. It's like, go on, get rid of him, which <laughs> But yeah, like we'll, we'll we'll obviously we'll talk more about this in the off season. But just that was announced now, so um, we'll, we'll we'll cut into it uh, later on. But we just thought we'd flag them for you there. Uh, a couple of interesting. Bits and pieces to cover up as well. So Randy Bullock, the greatest name in kicking, is 
been involved in some interesting uh, news stories surrounding his contract. There is a provision in the collective bargaining agreement that allows you to claim once off, you're allowed to claim a full year's contract from a team that you play one game with um, or that you have played with during the season you did not finish that season with. So he has claimed an entire year's game check off the Giants of 700 and something thousand, even though he played one game with them. He did get games with uh, Pittsburgh and Cincinnati as well during the year. But you got to add it to him, like, he might as well make use of it and get himself paid in this scenario, shouldn't he? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's actually interesting because it's something that, that Ronan mentioned last time is that there's this weird mindset among uh, fans and the media about players getting paid. I think we saw a little bit of this backlash against them um, <clears throat> in the media. Like, who cares? The rule is there. You might as well take advantage of it. You know, as a kicker, you're extremely expendable. This yeah. guy's guy was pretty brought in as a backup. His financial security is essentially nil. Go for it, Randy. Get paid. If you think this is the best time to use it, genuinely go for it. I, I hold no resentment towards these guys wanting to get as much money as they can out of what are short careers. That's it. And, like, it's from the Giants. And if you want to talk about annoying, moany, bitchy fan bases, the Giants right now, after losing the game, which we will discuss in a bit, have decided to run full tilt into this boat story from, uh, from last week. After sealing their place in the playoffs, the wide receivers of the Giants all went off to, was it Florida? Had a got a got a speedboat there, hung out in the speedboat with Justin Bieber and a couple of other people. Um, now I have seen some of the bits of audio that came out of it where there was there were drugs on the boat being offered to them, but everything that they've got is people refusing them, saying they're not allowed to take them. So nothing happened. But of course, this doesn't show dedication to the team. They're having too much fun. How dare these children or young adults enjoy their lives when they have large milestone events happen? So everyone's now going to fucking town on them mostly because and it is a problem they did not perform well as we'll talk about in the game later but this seems like a complete bullshit story to me isn't it Fitz? Yeah but I'm sure it'll inspire a really interesting Ballers episode you know. Oh of course <laughs> maybe they weren't really there maybe it was filming for a Ballers episode. Well it was in Miami so exactly. I think they're changing to LA for next season keeping up with your Ballers news. Oh yeah. Cute. I think it's infamous that the, the New York media is one of the worst medias under which to work that's why Eli Manning has turned into one of the most boring people possible uh, and kept himself on the raps. I don't think he turned into that, Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he really fit with that media market. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. interesting. He could basically, like, he could stay, uh, you know, fairly controversial free. Like, obviously it was the entire wide receiver core, but of course it's all about OBJ because that's what the New York Giants are all about as well. Obviously there's going to be questions about his, you know, his motivation, we heard about all about this early on in the season before he went on a good tear uh, for the like the last two thirds of the season, the whole net stuff, all that like stuff. And of course, in this case, they, they found a hole in the wall, and apparently that's from OBJ punching it. Well, I can't buy that he punched a hole in the wall because he's a little bitch. Well, yeah, but like maybe like, he would he would fast. end you, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me, brillo face. <laughs> So yeah, like it's a nothing story, but like I think it's just one of those cases. Like you know, as, as well, Governor of you, they got beat by a better team and a better quarterback. It is very. I think the drops were definitely bad, considering that they had an advantage early on that game. But you know, I don't think it has anything mm. to do with this. No, of course. Uh, I know you. You. Yeah. You. You feel quite passionately about this. No, one. well, I don't. I, it's one thing I want to add. I think Ronan's covered it off pretty well, though. God, no, he, one thing he forgot to mention is allegedly they trashed a plane as well afterwards. So it's all going on. Oh yeah. My favorite part of this story uh, is the enterprise. I can't remember who it was, but some enterprising journalist went and got Fred Smoot's take on it. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> oh my god! Apparently, Fred Smoot was not impressed. As row, in, row, row your boat, Fred. Like, nope, yeah, nobody got bottled by a prostitute. Doesn't really count no. as a boat party. 
Um, and then there was there was one slightly more serious element that was going on of a uh, question about how the league is handing out their uh, their discipline. Given we saw a wide receiver receive two separate fines for one celebration of a touchdown, yet there has been no, as 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 Harry put it, no requiem for crabs chain. So, do you want to tell us about this? So uh, this is something that happened uh, obviously in the the final week of the regular season, um, which was a, a keep to lead yanked off Michael Crabtree's train, chain now during the season <laughs> that's so dirty yeah, I know right during the season we were all like oh Michael Crabtree wearing a train ah oh, yes fucking, fucking baller look at him he thinks so cool and it was pretty cool turns out the chain actually had serious sentimental value it was passed on to him by a relative who has died and now we all feel like dickheads Akeem Tlaib on the other hand doesn't have any remorse ripped the chain off and then was seen on the sidelines mocking Crabtree over the fact that he pulled his chain off it wouldn't seem like a particularly big thing it just seemed like Akeem Tlaib being a prick so he sort of let it slide last time the league declined to fine to leave for this action. And this is the same league people get fined for flexing, for doing the, the hip thrust, though Antonio Brown got away with a very, very quick one mm. um, this week. But all kinds of nonsense, wrong coloured shoes, socks. This is basically like, this is... Oh, also, not just throwing a ball into the stands, miming throwing a ball Mime into the, the stands. Miming chalk, throwing, mime, oh, throwing the chalk. Miming the, miming the bow and arrow. Yeah. But then an actual act of like, what is destruction of somebody's property happens on the field. Uh, but it's just absolutely ridiculous that this league that's so concerned with policing people's morality, when it comes down to the choice between this guy as being a violent idiot and deliberately setting out to provoke, and fair play to Crabtree for not responding in fairness, because uh, we need some word from to deck to oh, leave. Yeah. And we'd, all, like, we'd all support him for it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Look, <laughs> he's done enough damage to himself this year. They're so obsessed with their own notion of discipline that they're like, yeah, well, he shouldn't have been wearing a chain in the first place. That's not part of the standard uniform, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So, like, that just shows how backwards the NFL's priorities are and how the, the level of, like, arbitrary self-importance that's involved in their decisions of being like you the reason they didn't punish Tlaib was essentially a, it was essentially in, in a way a punishment to Crabtree you show personality you show fun whether it be through your celebrations your your uh, cleats or chain you're wearing and you cannot expect any sympathy from the league which is just uh, it's, it's so petty and I, I don't get this this uh, sort of robotic thing and I throw back one thing very quickly one of the best celebrations this year um, was I think it was when uh, Cleveland scored a touchdown against us uh, Hawkins what he did was he put the ball on the... It was very subtle. He put the ball around, on the ground and he walked away doing a very subtly robotic walk. <laughs> and it was brilliant. It was Excellent. absolutely brilliant. Excellent. Uh, we'll do a quick injury roundup as well. There was a few this weekend in the games we're about to get onto. Uh, Jordy Nelson has fractured ribs, a collapsed lung and a damaged spleen was the initial uh, report we got out. Now they're saying that it's mostly just the ribs... Uh, he might still play. This seems like a diversion tactic rather than anything else to try and stop planning so people have to allow for him a little bit. He doesn't, like, looking at that injury, it doesn't look like he's going to be playing this weekend. He's quite possibly done for the season if that is anywhere near as bad as it looked like it was. Obviously, this is a big hit for them, but they did get a lot of performance. And we, this is the thing, we'll be talking about all these guys afterwards. In Pittsburgh, Ben Roethlisberger is wearing a boot, presumably because he hurt his shoe, because there's nothing fucking wrong with his leg. Um, but he just wants us all to think he's a real tough guy. You see, at the end of the game when he got hit, he was holding his shoulder, and then he comes out in a walking boot. Like, oh, oh my yeah. God, Ben, come on. It just it just travelled all the way down his body. Um, and then in Oh, my. And then um, Buffalo uh, Taylor's pulled some core muscles or torn them or something a couple of weeks out. Um, the big one is if this lasts until mid-March, this injury, he becomes guaranteed because similar to the 
deal that was with Colin Kaepernick injury guarantees him the next year's uh, income, which would be an interesting one if it was to happen. Does this make much hay? Because even if it is a small injury like this, it's not going to last into March anyway. Well, it, I suppose it depends on the recovery. It's a sports hernia or something along those lines, um, which generally are uncomplicated, but can be. I, I think people are making a bit too much of a big deal of it uh, in terms of, the, oh, is he trying to get the money? On the other hand, if he is, I don't blame him given the way Buffalo seemed to have started treating him recently. Uh, I'm like, yeah, go get your money, Tyrod. Mm. Um, the thing is, like, I, reckon, I reckon he'll get money on the open market. There's enough people who want a quarterback and he's been good enough. He will, he will, he will but it's. I think it's a security thing. It's like, you know, you have the... Yeah, it got, gives you the you've got the guaranteed money. You know what I yeah. mean. And then if the team basically it makes it harder for Buffalo to cut. Yeah, of course, of course. But um, obviously we'll talk about this more as it gets closer to the deadline. I'm sure we'll have a lot more talk then about contract negotiations and stuff with him. Uh, so with that, guys, I suppose we'll move on to the games from last week. So this was not a great slate, very one-sided. Uh, there's a stat that's been doing the rounds that we will not discuss about how long it's been since. Uh, we've seen this one-sided section of uh, wildcard games, as everyone is probably sick of hearing that one already. First up, Oakland at Houston, 14-27. to uh, Connor took on the Crustacean sensation in the first playoff game uh, to ever not have playoff implications, which is uh, <laughs> an interesting scenario, setting up the Pats for another bye week before the championship weekend. Um, Connor Cook had a 40% completion rate, one touchdown and three interceptions. Um, he also, he was given 45 attempts. This is not how you win with a rookie quarterback. You limit their attempts. You don't end up in this scenario. And it's not like this was a game that was out of hand. It wasn't that they were having to throw because they were so far behind. It's ridiculous. This game also received uh, 19 punts, which is in itself, I think, uh, potentially a record. But if not, it fucking should be. There was drops from receivers too, so overall not great from Oakland. In terms of Houston, Brock Lobster was very similar. He had a better completion percentage, 56%, one touchdown, 168 yards, and a rushing touchdown. He did that on 20-odd attempts, and they ran the ball 44 times. Even though the running the ball wasn't working, that's what you do when you have a less good quarterback. The defenses on both sides had high points. Uh, Merciless had two sacks. Clowney looked good. Mack looked like the best individual defensive player out there. But overall, like this was a game that was for the taking there wasn't much in it neither team were were streaking away with it but no one wanted to take this game by the horns and and, and handle it so harry i'm going to come to you first uh, in terms of oakland like raider fans obviously thinking what could have been if uh, if car hadn't gotten injured it's a remarkable drop off between the team with him and the team without him it was their first playoff game since 2002 and it did not go very well but what positives can they take out of it well, there aren't that many positives from the game itself. I mean, obviously, as you said, Khalil Mack looked good, but I think we already knew that. It was a difficult one to judge because not only, obviously, the issues at quarterback, they didn't have Donald Penn. Sorry, Hudson was missing for part of the game, came back and didn't look right. Uh, they were playing a their back at right tackle, at left tackle. It, yeah. it, it was a, a messy situation. The running game never really got going. I think credit to Houston on that front. But, you know, for the Raiders, this is one of those ones where the game itself, you can't take too much from it, other than that Derek Carr has probably now the best job security in the league. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to say, look, this is just an achievement from this season to get this far. And the fact that you can have got to this stage, it has to give the team real hope moving forward. And they can say, look, if we can keep Carr healthy, this is a team that can, definitely can beat Houston. And this oh. is a team that definitely can move forward. There is there are concerns, I think, about some of the coaching decisions made in that game. That was what I'd be worried um, about. Yeah, like Matt McGloin, obviously, was sitting on the sideline for the whole thing. Appeared to be apparently okay after his uh, trials in Denver, shall we say. Mm. 
And then Del Rio afterwards didn't say there was injury. He was like, oh, I just didn't think it would have made that much of a difference, which was, is a little odd. There was also reports coming out that uh, it wasn't just him that was saying this. There was there was a couple of reports saying things like uh, there was something bigger at play. There was other things going on that was keeping him out. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very unclear, but the, the justification itself is, is a little strange. And also, I think and this is something I think Ronan really nailed last week when he said that when you take away Derek Carr, the Raiders might not actually be that good. And I don't think that's entirely accurate because they were missing several other pieces. But the level of drop-off, when you compare it to, say, uh, New England without Tom Brady, which obviously is a huge drop-off from Tom Brady to eventually uh, Jacoby Brissett, and that did eventually manifest itself, we're still able to win a game. Yeah. And you have to question the the way this game was approached by the Raiders, the way this was coached, and the fact that the team sort of seemed to panic a bit after that first interception. Yeah. Uh, and never really was able to get a foothold back into this game. Mm, some more general questions coming out of it, but I think overall they have to look at this and be like, look, it's still fine. There were enough pieces missing that the coaching staff didn't know how to deal with it because they haven't been in this situation before. That's fine. It's still a young team on the rise. They'll find ways to work around this yeah. in the future, and they will They will improve. Definitely some more concerns than positives down the line from that one, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. And like I said, I think there, there, there is questions to be asked about the game planning they did if they ended up throwing it 45 times in this game. Houston were sub-300 yards on offense. They were getting 2.4 yards a carry out of Miller, yet they still got the win. So a lot of Houston fans are happy. But surely, like looking at this performance, they're just meet for the grinder next week, or am I missing something? Yeah, no, like, like they, they played decent in this game, like, and they obviously won the game, but obviously the the step-off between the Derek Carr Raiders and the New England Patriots uh, in Boxborough is, you know, that, that's leagues apart effectively. So, yeah, like, it's, it's a massive difference, but I suppose if they have any hope going into next week, uh, it's through the defense. So, like, I'm sure we'll talk about that in the preview, but by talking about this game, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest compliment that you can take away from this game in terms of how, in terms of the defense, was that basically the Oakland Raiders played a game of um, O line shuffle the entire game, where they effectively basically put on an extra O line man, like put a six O line men the majority of the game to try and block up Jadavian Clowney, who basically busted up the entire uh, Oakland offensive plan uh, in the first quarter uh, with that interception. When they actually did that and, and shut down Clowney somewhat. Then Whitney Merciless then started getting in and they shuffled back over to stop him. So it was kind of like shuffling back and forth trying to stop these two. And obviously, as Harry points out, they were missing their left tackle and they were missing their center for, for a large amount of time. So that obviously contributed to that. But I think you, you can always take a good compliment when the defensive line is so dominant that when they double team one guy, the other guy starts going out so they have to double team in and basically are left in a futile situation. Uh, and like the New England O line has definitely improved, it, it, but it's not an elite O line. So like if they're going to win, they're basically going to have to follow the playbook that was given by the Denver Broncos last year, which is that you need to get to Tom Brady very, 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 very fast and very, very consistently. Because the defense, uh, it was the best defense in the AFC statistically uh, during the season, but you know it, it, it isn't perfect. There are certainly still holes around there. Uh, like they're still requiring, like Vince Wilfork at 35 is still their best defensive tackle, so there's questions about how much pressure can get up the middle. But overall, it's a good defense, but they're going to have to go to an extra level to have any chance against New England. Yeah, and like and like the New England defense isn't great in terms of getting to the quarterback, but they are good at containing and keeping a quarterback in a tight space. And Brock Osweiler consistently has been bad at doing that. 
So I could see them getting a lot of coverage sacks. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they have things to build on, and the defense is certainly scary, and that's without J.J. Watt. So, like, I think that's what won them the game. Uh, and they just need, basically, Brock Osweiler to be, like, latter-day Peyton Manning and not make too many screw-ups. If he doesn't throw interceptions, that may just be enough to at least make it a somewhat competitive game. Yeah, so, like, that's that seems to be a fair assessment of them. Like, there are there's potential there, but probably not enough. And we'll talk about that when we get on to looking to next week's games. The next game up, uh, it's one that will be close to your heart. Uh, Detroit at Seattle, 6-26. to this game was far closer than we would have expected uh, going into halftime and just afterwards. Uh, but then Seattle kicked it up a gear in the second half and scored 16 points in the fourth quarter to uh, give themselves a 20-point lead uh, to win the game. Richardson was flying around. Big surprise from him. Full on how much peds you're feeding him, I don't have a clue. Uh, like He just made insane catches all over the shop. Baldwin went over 100 yards and Rawls had an absolute game. 161 yards and a touchdown. Um, and there's also, I suppose, potential down the line for other people coming back. Back, but that was a statement game from him to say he might be able to to carry the ball in the way that you're used to seeing. I said last week that the Lions were possibly the worst playoff team going in here, and I feel fairly vindicated by that, having watched his performance. Did Six, you not watch the Oakland Houston game? Oh yeah, but see, there's, 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 there's good excuses on those ones. Uh, six points, two hundred and thirty-one yards. Absolutely nothing going for them. They tried to run a large section of their offense through Zach Zenner, who was averaging three point one yards an attempt, which is not going to work. This offense was 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 brutal. Um, like Ronan, there's questions to be answered in Detroit. Like this is four losses on a trot, all to playoff teams. Like when we go through their wins through the season, they weren't that impressive, and the offense has fallen off in the last eight games. Um, are there changes coming to this Lions team, and what do you think they're going to need to be? I, like the thing is, like obviously the history of the Detroit Lions is so full of failure that you would be tempted, as, as, as an owner at least, not to rock the boat on what is at least a somewhat successful season. And like when you look at the issues on the team, they're fairly predictable. The run game is gone because Amir, like Amir Abdullah is gone. They were obviously missing their their third down back as well. Like Zach Zenner, like when Zach Zenner is your top running back, there's only so much you can do really as an offense. And of course, like the whole idea, if your running back is out, you need to rely on your quarterback. And Matt Stafford, for the last half of the season, has been playing with a broken finger. And that has affected his play. Like, he's definitely had a step down since then. Now, of course, you know, mitigating factors, there's a lot of them. Obviously, the last month of the season, they played a lot of good teams. They played Green Bay, they played, they played the Dallas Cowboys, they played Seattle Seahawks here. You know, they live by the sword, you die by the sword. There's no ignoring the fact that all the games that they won during that streak in the middle of the season were in the fourth quarter comeback, with the exception of one game. So that speaks to a team that was playing to the very limits of it. And there is holes all along. I think at quarterback, you're fine. In wide receiver, you're fine. And the, the O-line, they added a Taylor Decker this, this year, and he's turned out to be a good player. Um, so the O-line's okay, but you know they probably need another running back because you can't rely on Amir Abdullah's um, health, basically. And the defense needs uh, additional players all across it. Like, uh, I think with the exception of maybe Darius Slay, um, uh, like the, the, there really is no other... There is no player there that you could reliably go... Like they have players like DeAndre Levy, but he's been dealing with injuries for a lot himself as well. You Like Ziggy Ansah has had a bad season, only two sacks the entire season, although we did get two in this game as well. So like, there's some talent there, but I think, you know, when they're going to the draft this year, I'm sure we'll talk about this not in the offseason, I think they're going to put a lot of draft capital into the defense, and we'll see what they can do when they can get a defense that can match 
the decent production from that offense. If they can throw in a decent running back, then this team isn't the far away. But I think we saw here, and we saw in the last month, that this was a team that really backed into the playoffs, and that's where its talent level really was. Like, it is a wild card team. That is its talent level. It isn't much more than that. But, you know, I think they can take a lot of good things from this season in terms of the backbone and in terms of getting those comebacks and the development of Matt Stafford is obviously a massive positive going forward. Like, if you looked at the talent on this team, you wouldn't have expected to make the playoffs at the beginning of the season. The fact that they made it is good. I think, you know, obviously it's kind of similar to Atlanta last year. It's always bitter when the last half of the season or the last impression is so poor. But, like, if you're ownership, you need to stay calm, stick with what's still working, and invest the you know invest resources where they're needed, and that's on the defense and at the running back position. Yeah, no. And then we might see Detroit Lions could be a real contender in the NFC North. Yeah, no, of course, Harry. Like this looks a lot more like the Seattle of old, but is that real or is that a reflection of the Lions team that they faced? I've got to wonder um, when so many pieces suddenly click into gear, particularly pieces that have been underperforming all season. Like the O line had quite a good game, probably uh, the most aggressive and impressive game we've seen from the Seattle O line all season if it is just a question of the opposition. And, you know, I think there's an element of this team perhaps stepping up in the playoffs, perhaps there isn't, you know, they've had problems in the past and now really is, is fired up. It is a kind of team with that mentality where you can see that would that would certainly have an impact. But I, I do think there's an element here where it's down to a Detroit team that lacks talent and also played badly. Like, I mean, Stafford had a bad game. As he said, he was injured. His receivers gave him very little help throughout that game. They weren't able to establish a running game. The defense, which is, I understand running the same, but there are some other pieces who have flashed Hallam, Kerry Hyder, Tier Whitehead, um, have looked good at times this season, but they just seemed overwhelmed uh, in pretty much all facets of the game on, on this occasion. I mean, and we can, you know, you can make as much fuss as you want about like that, that face mask on the touchdown catch and all this kind of stuff, but it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. This is a team that was beaten. They did, in fairness, do an okay job of containing Seattle in the second half, but when Seattle were able to step it up a gear, the Lions just didn't have that higher gear to move into. And that's got to be the concern that they are kind of, they can succeed against bad teams. We've seen that. And they can succeed against good teams, but they're reliant on a good team spending an entire game playing down to their level. And when Seattle were able to elevate, were able to get things going, were able to get the running game uh, dominant, were able to get Doug Baldwin loose, they weren't able to, to really match that. You know, you've got to say to take some, some positives for Seattle and credit the players for performing in the way they did in the second half. But at the end of the day, um, it will be very interesting to see how much they're able to do that against uh, better teams down the line. Yeah, but uh, Miami of Pittsburgh, 12-30. to 30. The Dolphins couldn't get out of their own way in this game, but they could definitely get out of the way of like Antonio Brown and Le'Veon Bell, allowing 298 yards and four touchdowns to these two, the two that you should probably focus in on on this Steelers uh, offense. Fumbles in key moments meant that by halftime, this game was essentially out of, out of reach. Matt Moore was actually pretty decent, uh, 29 of 36 for 289 yards. Sacked five times, which I think is a reflection of there was terrible, terrible blocking from the O-line. The left side, uh, Brandon Albert just kept caving in and not picking up blitzes. JHI got nothing, 2.1 average on 16 attempts. And the Steelers line just manhandled this Dolphins D-line, which is meant to be their strength, holding them to only one sack. So Ronan... In terms of this game, do you actually think Tannehill would have made a difference or was this team just overmatched? No, Tannehill wouldn't have made a difference. I think we saw with Matt Moore that with the exception of perhaps his uh, pocket awareness in terms of feeling the pressure, he he was generally good. He generally did the best of what he had, but what he had was very little. Like I said here last week that if Pittsburgh got an early lead, that, like, that basically the game would be over. Now, to be fair to the Miami Dolphins, there was a few moments in the game when they looked like they'd come back, but some really like badly timed, basically strip sacks, uh, one in particular before the end of the, yeah, just the before first the half. half, 
from James Harrison was particularly devastating for whatever chance this game had of being competitive. So when you look at this team, we expected that the D-line would be the strength of this team, and it wasn't. Lev Bell ran all over them in the first half, and to, and, and the Lester said in the second half as they, as they took the uh, foot uh, off the pedal. But it was like this D-line is supposed to have elite players like Tom and Sue and Cameron Wick, and they really did nothing. Um, like It wasn't their fault completely because the secondary was effectively pulled together from the spare parts of the you know uh, the DB room of the Miami Dolphins, they were missing players. Uh, they were missing their two starting safeties. They were missing Byron Maxwell. So like I hate to sound like a broken record, but like the Miami Dolphins, similarly, uh, but maybe a bit better than the Detroit Lions. But it's a similar situation where there's there's definitely holes along that team, and you know maybe an all-world quarterback could have pulled them up. But Ryan Tannehill is not that man. Ryan Tannehill is, is like maybe a step above that more, nothing more. You know this is a good team. This is a first-year coach, a very young coach bringing a team together from pieces that, at the beginning of the season, you never would have expected to do anything. CJ Ajayi, for example, although he didn't actually do anything in this game. This is a progress season. They've got to be happy with this. This will give them a lot more rope in terms of building the team going forward. But I don't think anyone expected them to be a real contender in the AFC. And in this case, it just came up against uh, the like, most explosive triplets in the, in the NFL. Uh, and that's just that's just the way it goes. They're not the only team who got blown out by Pittsburgh this season. We'll see if they're the last, uh, though, of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> in, in theory, they will be, because if we get blown out by them, uh, we were already blown out by them. <laughs> we do that going forward, it won't be a new one. Uh, Harry, we saw lots of six linemen sets here, like 40% of their game was out of six linemen sets, and they heavily leaned on the run. Uh, they seem to know exactly how to neutralise this Dolphins team. So, like, will this approach work elsewhere with your New Englands and your Kansas Cities, or should we essentially ignore this game tape and expect that this is them scheming for the Dolphins rather than... When you're looking at um, New England and Kansas City, they're, you know, New England don't have the best pass rush in the world, and Kansas City don't have the best run defense in the world. Although Kansas City obviously have, have good pass rush, New England have good run defense. What they do have that Miami don't is they've got more, a more cohesive unit on defense. They've shown themselves throughout the season to be better able to adapt and strategize. They've got much better defensive backfields, which means they can focus more on, on dealing with the situation in the box. It's going to be much, much more difficult for Pittsburgh to simply overwhelm them in the way that they did to Miami. What is going to be interesting, particularly going into, into the KC game, is the other problem area on defense is the only area we haven't mentioned, which is also a problem area, is the linebacking. Like, outside of Kiko Alonso, who is fine, uh, they really don't have a huge amount of talent back there, and that's very, very difficult when you're against a guy like Lev Bell. And we saw that only really O-line able to punch huge holes for him, but he was able to get into the linebackers and make big, big gains. That's going to be much more difficult to do when they come up against Kansas City, and if they get through that when they come up against... I mean, we're, we're presuming New England, but even if it's Houston, Houston, Houston somehow... Houston have got much better Houston linebackers. Houston got much better linebackers. So, yeah, I think this is very much a function of the game, and I think it shows... Uh, it speaks well to the coaching staff and to the, the talented players that they're able to execute it and basically not let Miami back into this. Todd, Todd Haley did something well. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it, it very much functions the game, very much just well-coached team. Uh, doing what it needed to do to win this one. Wouldn't look too much into it from the tactical point of view, but from the strategic point of view, it shows how well Pittsburgh can play and that they can adapt their game plan. So will we see something like this again in the next couple of games? No. Will we see something else that could turn out to be very, very effective? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, they have the potential to do yeah. that. 
And I think this also then gives them the ability that they can mix in a little bit of this to then make people expect that they're going into that kind of run-heavy sets and maybe distract people that way. Uh, we'll move on to our final game from this week, uh, the one with the biggest margin in it, uh, New York Giants at the Green Bay Packers, 13-38. to Aaron Rodgers on a roll and then allowing Pats fans to breathe a little sigh of relief uh, as they beat the Giants by 25 points. Uh, it was a game of two halves, or more specifically two sections, one being 40% and one being 60%. Green Bay were in negative yardage uh, up to 20 minutes into this game. Then through two particular plays, which I think we both know, one involving incredible line work and Aaron Rodgers clearly putting together a tape for like Dancing with the Stars, uh, managing to get their first touchdown, and then a massive 50-yard bomb for their second touchdown, and they went in at 14-6 to six at the half. Uh, Aaron Rodgers played out of his skin the second half, 25-40, 362 yards, four touchdowns. Both Adams and Cobb went over 100 yards, uh, making up for the loss that we spoke earlier of Jordy Nelson. Uh, New York shot the bed entirely. Odell Beckham couldn't do anything. He dropped approximately 46 passes in this game, uh, <laughs> which was uh, a, a big problem. Uh, in fact, when he punched the hole in the wall, he was actually just trying to get through the door. Um, <laughs> So uh, I love that. That's a repurposed Trent Richardson joke. Yeah. <laughs> so, Harry, normally big swings happen at halftime whenever you know coaching staffs readjust what they're doing in response to team. But it was the last five minutes of the game, the green, of the half, that Green Bay swung around, and we didn't see any adaption from the from the New York Giants defense. They fell off entirely from a team that held them to negative yards for twenty something minutes of the game. They just fell apart. Like, what do you think caused that? I think there's, there's a couple of factors there. Obviously, one of them is when Aaron Rodgers gets hot, he's, he's, it can be very, very, very difficult to stop, no matter how well you're playing. And um, We saw, I think, Green Bay's O-line pick it up uh, as it went on, start to play more like we've seen them play down the back half, back stretch of the season. That first touchdown you mentioned, incredible work by the right tackle to keep one side of the pocket clean, even as the other side collapsed, which gave Rodgers the room to move around. For Green Bay, it was an element of it clicking and the Giants, like you said, not being able to adapt to it. But the problem was that what Green Bay ended up exploiting were pre-existing weaknesses of the Giants. Like, we know, for example, in Landon Collins, they have a superb center field safety. So where are the Giants vulnerable? Down the sidelines. And we saw big gains start to come out of that. Rodgers throwing to Adams and being able to get one-on-one coverage guys like Mm. Eli Apple and get away from them. The loss of Dominic Roberts-Cromartie obviously probably had had an impact there and didn't help out. Um... There is, I think, an element with this with this Giants team that uh, as much talent as they have, and I think a lot of young talent in the backfield, they're still reliant on the front seven to cause disruption. And when they weren't able to do that, we saw there wasn't really a plan B for this team once they could no longer win that sort of physical battle up front. Now, you know, this is again, this is this is a young head coach. This is a team with talent, uh, but you are going to see things like that in a relatively young unit and relatively inexperienced together as a unit where. They're not really aware of how to address the critical weaknesses. They're not really aware of how to fall back into that plan B when plan A doesn't work out. But sometimes, I mean, like against another quarterback, they might still have been able to be in this game. But when Aaron Rodgers gets hot, we just saw the Giants, as good as they are on defense, aren't quite at that level they need to be at to hang mm. with a guy like that when he's when he's on fire. So it took a while to get going, but they were scary once it kicked in. There's no Nelson likely in the next game, but like I suppose, what do you think stalled them for the first 20 to 25 minutes, and how can they avoid that against this Dallas team, who, while also strong on defense, have Ezekiel Elliott and Des Bryant and performances out of their offense that could allow them to, to run a track meet and compete? It's kind of, it's almost like a weird simulation of how the season worked where Aaron Rodgers looked way off for the first maybe third or half of the season, but got really hot down the stretch. Uh, obviously, the very famous run-the-table comment 
for the last six games is something that stuck out in the, in the media. The O-line has been playing well all season. Aaron Rodgers has had time to play and had time to like scan the field all season. But it's just been a case that earlier on in the season, his players weren't getting open or he didn't feel confident. And he wasn't mixing in the actual, you know, read, like his actual original play read. He was trying to improvise too much. And there was a sense of that happening in that first 20 minutes or so. There were several times that he took sacks and he didn't need to take, take a sack, where he had plenty of time to get out, thrown the ball away. But he, there was kind of a sense that, I don't know, Aaron Rodgers believes he can do anything, so he'll, he'll stick in the, in the pocket and he'll keep doing it. Eventually, that paid off. Like, obviously, looking at that first touchdown, that is a play where, most coaches will probably tell you to throw the ball away. Most quarterbacks, most likely, would be better off throwing it away. But Aaron Rodgers played around the pocket, kept dancing around, and then found uh, Adams on what is a very slow, like a very, very small window while he's still moving to the side. And that's kind of thing Aaron Rodgers do. Obviously, it goes without saying, another Hail Mary for, for Aaron Rodgers is kind of becoming uh, blasé at this point between that and the two ones he got last season. So there's kind of it's kind of a weird thing with Aaron Rodgers that Early on in the season, the issue was that he wasn't taking his reads. And the way that they got into this game, after busy having a tough time, was doing that. But in the second half, you saw him take the reads and actually take the plays that were available as they were schemed up and get more success by doing that. So even though he'll be remembered for the plays that were improvised and were actually very special or busy, very implausible, the real time this game was killed off was just after uh, Mike McCarthy like had gone for it on fourth down and short and had not made it and New York Giants just got a, a touchdown back to bring it within one point the next, the, the next series like Aaron Rodgers splits off basically three very good plays in a row but they were good plays schemed up well and then the pass to Randall Cobb was just a you know a classic play give it to the player and let them do the rest I think if they want to succeed against Dallas they need to go with their game plan quicker. Dallas is not an elite defense. They've shown talent this year, but they're not a good defense. They should be good enough and confident enough to go with their reads and go with the way it's schemed up by Mike McCarty. Uh, and if they keep doing it this way, where Aaron Rodgers is like, oh, I don't need to go for my first read because I can just wait for five minutes and eventually I'll do like the best play ever. I think that could end up harming them because as you say, Dallas isn't going to give them that much time. It's a weird situation. The O-line has been amazing all season. It's just, it, can Aaron Rodgers take advantage of it and stop playing against himself and just do what he's told to do uh, when it's important? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we look at the games for next week, but I suppose before that we'll take one or two questions from our listeners. So this question comes in from uh, Kean. He's a Green Bay Packers fan. I suppose he must be happy with that result. Uh, maybe not so happy with uh, Jordy's ribs. He says... I was reading that they use all-star ref crews for the playoffs. So this is basically when they, rather than use entire crews from during the regular season, they take different refs from different crews that they think have performed well and put them together as some kind of all-star team. Uh, so is, 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 is this a good decision or is this a bad decision? What are your thoughts on it? Look, I love the Pro Bowl, but the difference is these are refs. These are not players. So it doesn't work the same way. You can't just assume that they're going to be able to gel immediately and perform to the highest level that a football player ever can. Uh, these crews, I think... Now, we didn't, see, we didn't see too many egregious calls this week, but I suppose that might also be a factor that there was only four games instead of the normal kind of 15. Um, 
But I do think that this is a bad approach to drawing together the crews because these crews are not used to working with each other. They're not used to arguing with each other over what calls are be. They're not sure of the hierarchy and how they interact with each other. Uh, I think it's something that's rife for issue and we've seen issues happen both this week but previously as well. If I was in charge, I'd be looking at taking a team of refs who I thought did particularly well and putting them as a unit in rather than taking bits and pieces but I suppose there are going to be holes and maybe those holes need to be fixed on those teams yeah well look, I agree with you entirely there's no perfect solution we've said that I think every time we talk about refereeing there's no way to immediately make everything perfect in the playoffs obviously uh, you have you know the stakes are higher and uh, mistakes have more of an impact I agree with you entirely that it may would make if they're rating the crews and rating them as individuals it would make way more sense to rate them as a team and just be like, look, the back judge on this team might not be the best, but overall it averages out to be a lot better. Because it is those, to, to borrow a, a phrase that's referred to players, those intangible things, the communication, like say the hierarchy, the ability to um, have that sort of structure of discussion that they're used to doing, that all goes out the window when these guys are trying to familiarise themselves. And there is so much more to refereeing than simply throwing a flag at the right time. There's a lot of discussion, there's a lot of uh, interpretation, as we've seen over the last season. Mm. There was, there was an interesting moment this week where uh, they called uh, an offside but did not realise that another judge had thrown a, uh, a pass interference penalty further down the field. They announced the offside, then afterwards turned around, realised there was another penalty they had to go over, discuss and come back, then announced it, said that they had taken the, the, uh, the, the pass interference play, but then realised that actually they had not taken the pass interference play, and there was there was messiness, especially yeah. around communication. There were, and I mean also you could point to, and I mean I don't know how much you can blame, but there were missed calls, like obviously the, the poor Richardson face mask, uh, situation, the fact that the hit on Jordy Nelson wasn't flagged initially. There are definitely things that you you, you know you can't say that's definitively because the crew is isn't isn't on the same page. But you can certainly say that you know when a call is missed, is this a way the crew is used to structuring who looks at what, even something as basic as that? Yeah. Whose responsibility it is to follow this part of the play that might not be as well oiled and as sort of in sync as you would expect from a complete crew. What about yourself, Ron? What's your thoughts on this? Yeah, like, like I pretty much agree with what Harry said there. Like I think the only fan base that was particularly salty about the refs was Detroit. Uh, I think there was obviously the, the Richardson incident, and I think there was a, a fairly uh, a P, a PI call that wasn't done due to not being catchable, which was somewhat questionable. But like I, I think one, one thing to just note is that in the earlier rounds of the playoffs, to call it an all-star crew probably isn't completely accurate. I believe it's only at the championship and Super Bowl level that they pull from the official tier one list of refs. So it's more bit spread it's a bit more spread around for the wild card and divisional round. So it's more like it's less all star and more like all pretty good refs <laughs> uh, at this rate. So and I think once you, you add in the like the lack of familiarity and the lack of communication professionalization might make this a lot more interesting like, like next season as mm. we go on with the professional refs. But I think with the you know the current amateur system it's done on right now, uh, it's probably it, it, it's a bit more of an issue because they really do rely on that kind of familiarity with each other. Uh, if they become professional, that may ameliorate it because you know, they should be better at their jobs in theory. And you've also got more time, uh, you know, if you're not having to worry about your job, job, you know, there's more time for these crews to actually get together and work together before the game. But um, but yeah, thanks for your question, Keen. Yeah, we agree. It doesn't seem like the best solution, uh, but. Again, there's no perfect solution. We just think there probably are better ways of doing this. Uh, and with that, we're going to move on to a very tasty-looking slate of games for next week. 
Okay, so we've got four games. It's uh, it's getting down to fucking brass tacks now, boys. Our teams are playing this week, Harry. Interesting. It was, it was a weird sensation to watch the playoffs without the Chiefs in it and be like, but there's still more football <laughs> to be played. First up, we've got Seattle at Atlanta. Uh, I've taken Atlanta. Harry's taken Atlanta. And Fitz has taken Seattle. So I suppose, Harry, I'll come to you first on this. Um, yeah, this is a, a very interesting game. And I was quite close on making this call. But ultimately, for me, the difference between these two teams is right now consistency. And we even saw it from Seattle last week. They were struggling for a large part of that game before they were able to pull away. You're not going to be able to do that against a team like Atlanta. With a team that is as explosive as the Atlanta Falcons, if you take a while to get going, this team might have raced three touchdowns ahead of you and you're fighting an uphill battle to come back into it. The Falcons have shown consistently this season that they're able to move the ball, they're able to maximize the weapons around them, and we've seen them do it against good defenses this season as well. It's not like they're just a flat-track bully of a team. This is a team that has a huge amount of ways to hurt you. It has moved away from what we saw last season of them trying to force the Julio Jones at every single opportunity. They have um, solid other options in the passing game. Both the running backs are very good in the passing game. If the running game doesn't get going, so even out of the backfield, they have multiple different ways to hurt you. And Seattle, as we've seen, their defense isn't quite where it was last season. They're missing pieces, and it's been hurting them. On that basis, as much as you say, oh, you know, you, you would go with the better defense in a close game, uh, this being in Atlanta, this being that Atlanta offense, it's difficult to see that Seattle are going to be able to play the same way for 60 minutes as they were able to do for a half last week against the better team. And also, you have to think that like Atlanta, for all of the questions about their defense, like if you've got a guy like Vic Beasley, like he's a tough guy to shut down when your O-line is still struggling to pass block. That's going to cause problems for Seattle in a way that are perhaps more talent-efficient and somewhat demotivated Detroit Lions defense wasn't able to do. On that basis, you've got to think that Atlanta have more way, just more, have more ways to win this game in Seattle. And that's not to say they necessarily will, but I think it's much more likely, given that they're at home, given how their offenses look, given that they're coming off of a week off, they're just in a much, much better position right now. Yeah, no, of course, of course. Uh, Fitz, what's your thoughts? Obviously, you're, you're back in your boys. Let's be honest, like Harry, Harry spoke a lot of truth there. This is, to a certain extent, a homer pick. They're away from home. They did win there, of course, earlier on the season in what was uh, one of the better, best games of the season. Like, I think Harry has a lot of points. What I took away from last week was that like Seattle struggled to a certain extent, but that they were imposing their brand of football on that game. Uh, even though they weren't winning by a lot, they were getting the run game going. The defense was shutting down the other team, and the offense was busy asking to do what it is. So, like, I think... That's the way that the Seahawks won their Super Bowl. That's the way the Seahawks were, were in basically the prime a couple of years ago. And if they could return to that type of football, then that makes it tough in Atlanta because you keep the ball away from them, you keep them frustrated, and you kind of get at that, let that atmosphere kind of turn a bit sour on them. Because obviously at this point, the Atlanta fans are expecting a shootout. They're expecting fireworks. So if you can stop that, then that's important. Uh, Julio Jones will probably be matched up against Richard Sherman again. We'll see if the miscommunications, which marred the third quarter of that game earlier on, reappear, or whether the adjustments have been made by Chris Richard, the defensive coordinator, uh, have been made more you know, accurately this time, a bit more extra preparation, a bit more focused. So I think Earl Thomas, of course, is lost and very much felt, but the Seahawks' defense has been getting better, especially as Michael Bennett has started to get back in formation. I think we saw last week they ran Cliff Averill, Frank Clark, and Michael Bennett in their front, uh, based on the expectation that the run game wouldn't do much. I think even against a decent running back, and obviously they have two good running backs, Atlanta, of Devonta Freeman and Tevin Coleman, they can still do a lot of things. So I think if they can shut down the run game, 
uh, and shut down that kind of perimeter game with players like Taylor Gabriel and make it about like trying to force it to Mohamed Sanu and Julio Jones. I think that the defensive backs of the Seahawks are still good enough that they can do that. It's going to be an incredibly tough game. I think it's going to be an incredibly exciting game. And even if Seahawks do go down by a fair amount uh, early on in this game, we saw in games uh, with Atlanta in the back half of the season, they don't have a great defense. They're rarely not good at preventing other teams from, from getting getting scores. And, of course, we saw last season when the Seahawks came back from a 30-something deficit to nearly uh, have a comeback against Carolina, that you could never count the Seahawks team out. So I think this will be a great game. I think it's pretty a coin flip. So in a coin flip, I'm going to go for the homer pick and uh, take my Seattle boys. And uh, I'm looking forward to this. It should be a good game. Yeah, no, no, I'm with you 100% on that. It's going to be a great game. Like I said, I, for similar reasons, Harry, outside of Atlanta, um, just that thing of a couple of injuries on the Seahawks team, Make me think they might be more susceptible than they were in the previous matchup to some of the some of the offensive fireworks that we've seen from Atlanta. And I think that let's be honest, they knew in advance that the Seattle Seahawks were the boys that were going to be playing. I don't think they were really expecting the Lions to come through that. So they've had a week of preparation for them. Uh, so I think that might that might work in their favour. Uh, next up, New England have a bye, so on to Pittsburgh versus Kansas. <laughs> no, uh, Houston are travelling up to New England. Uh, we've taken New England across the board. Go on, so Harry, we'll let you. Uh, look, I mean, I think we've we've had a bit of a discussion on this already. Look, I mean, Houston are a well-coached team, and that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's just so difficult to pick against New England in general, in Foxborough, yeah. in the playoffs, um, against a Houston team that has so many problems on offense. They beat an incredibly disorganized and weak Oakland team. But it not wasn't convincing. Exactly, it wasn't convincing. And you just think up against New England, they're not going to be able to to do what they do. You're not going to see Brock Osweiler get time to actually escape the pocket and, and make plays with his legs. You're not going to be able to see them uh, find the kind of space, throw tight ends consistently open for a first down. We saw Baltimore try to do that against New England when they played them, and that got absolutely shut down uh, by New England throughout the game. When Houston rely on that as their bread and butter, pretty much have to with Osweiler. That's not a game that's going to succeed that short passing thing and thing against the way this New England linebacking core plays. If we lose this somehow by a miracle, I won't feel too bad because like Vince Wilfork, like he's my yeah. day. New England have uh, been an incredibly solid defense this season without being spectacular, but they do not give up a lot of points. Yeah. Um, they have much better cornerbacks than, than Oakland did, although they don't have a standout rusher like Khalil Mack. They're a much more organized unit. They're very solid in the linebacking core. And of course, on the other side of the ball, you've got Tom Brady and you've got so many different ways that this team can kill you. If, if Houston try and do that big, you know, bring the rush, bring Clowney, Merciless going through the middle. It's going to be uh, a lot kind of to Bennett and then you're just going to... It's going to be a lot to Bennett. This is, this, is the, this is a Dion Lewis game. This is where you punish a team that plays, you know, that very athletic style, very aggressive style from the front seven. You have guys, James White and Dion Lewis, who can make plays out of the backfield. Guys like Julian Edelman, who can run those short intermediate routes. And again, Martellus Bennett, mm. who's just a huge target over the middle. This just seems like the game that's just perfectly set up for New England. Yeah, like if you're, if, if you're in any way... Yeah, like to play devil's advocate, maybe Bill O'Brien knows a bit from his time with them, and if they can get a load of pressure going, like an insurmountable more than than New England have had to deal with previously, that might disrupt them a bit. But yeah, there's no way I can really see Houston doing this at all. This is the least interesting game of the of the slate by a good amount. So next up, we've got Pittsburgh at Kansas City. I've taken Kansas City. Harry's taking Kansas City, and Fitz has taken Pittsburgh. Fitz, I'll let you kick off with Pittsburgh. I think the defense is important for Pittsburgh, but I think this all comes down to the offensive. Uh, the offensive. Kansas City have a good defense, uh, like a very good defense, but 
they have they're, they're kind of a, it's been a weird defense like defensive year for KC because KC is a team that's always built its identity off that defense. But while the defense has been really clutch and come up on really like in really important spots, it perhaps hasn't lived up on a consistent basis uh, to the to the levels they might have had in previous seasons. It's, it's in some ways being more streaky. Uh, a defense that then we might have expected from from the like maybe the Kansas City defense with just using it all those sacks. Uh, like for me, the key player for Pittsburgh if they win will be Lev Bell. Uh, we've talked about him a lot, obviously in the review. We talked about it, the contract situation. Uh, but you know, Kansas City are missing Derek Johnson. He is their premier inside linebacker that has been a major loss for them. So that puts intense pressure on players like Dontari Poe, uh, like Zombo, and, and like the replacement inside linebackers to actually do things. That, that, that Derek Johnson is the leader in that situation. Like, we've seen in games against Baltimore, in the game against Miami, who are both decent teams, but they got dominated by Le'Veon Bell. So, you know, if Kansas City want to win this, they're going to have to hold Le'Veon Bell to, like, at the most, maybe 100 yards overall, including, like, receptions and, and rushing. And I just don't see that happening. Kansas City have been good, but they've been really streaky. I think this, if Kansas City win they'll have to be much more solid than they have been because I don't think they can rely on that same sense of getting those pick sixes and stuff that they've relied on through the season. I think they're going to play conservative Pittsburgh, but I think with Lev Bell, that might be enough. Uh, and I think the defense on the Pittsburgh side, even though it lacks depth at the moment, has looked really good in the last month or so. They won their last seven games. They're on form. They have the most explosive, explosive triplets in the league. Uh, and that gives them just enough in this game. It should be another good game, of course. Uh, but I, I just I just have doubts over the streakiness of how Kansas City have won this season, and wonder if they can replicate that in the big spot here. Oh, fair enough. Like, so it's going to be a very very cold game. If if you want a bit of crack, go on and have a look. There's uh, interactive photo videos of uh, of what the what the Chief Stadium looks like at the moment. There's a good kind of foot and a half of snow <laughs> on it. Um, it's going to be a very cold, very tough game with a very 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 aggressive crowd in there. Uh, I think that plays to kind of slowing down some of the play of the speedsters that you've got. I'm happy with how the defense has rounded into form of late. Uh, we're almost certainly going to have Justin Houston back in for the game, so him and D Ford will be coming off the edges. Uh, we've seen great performances in the back half, especially from Chris Jones and Don Terry Poe getting pushed up the middle. I, one of the big things for Pittsburgh in the game this week was that their O-line held up exceptionally and gave them lots of time when they needed it, and that also allowed them to get holes for the running game. I think that's going to be less effective against the Chiefs in this game. I am worried about our run defense against them, but we've brought in, I believe it's... It's March, I'm not certain, to come in and fill in in, uh, in DJ's role. That's his natural position, and he is a run stuffer. So we have people in there specifically to try and deal with that. Um, we've had decent success against number one receivers. Obviously, we got the shit kicked out of us by Pittsburgh the last time we played. But since then, we've only lost two games. Their offense has stepped up quite a bit as well. We've got the special teams play and the explosiveness of Tyreek Hill. We've seen improvements in how the Kelsey has played. Kelsey's had an incredible season so far. Like there are weapons on this offense more than I have seen going into a playoff run in a very, very long time. I think the defense, I agree with you, has been streaky in parts, but has been kind of putting it together of late and is geared for this game. And similar to what I said previously uh, in the Atlanta game, I think the KC kind of knew that it was going to be Pittsburgh because if it wasn't going to be Pittsburgh, we didn't really worry which of the other two teams it was going to be. 
I think they're going to be ready for this. I think it's going to be a very hostile atmosphere. And I'm with you that if Pittsburgh start to run up on them, I do get worried if they start to if they get a quick start, whether the Chiefs can respond and stick to it. But I think that they should have enough talent to compete with them and with the home field advantage and with how I think the the weather and the atmosphere is going to go against how Pittsburgh like to play. I think that's going to stand to them as well. Also, Pittsburgh on the road is a very different team from Pittsburgh at home. So I'm hopeful, but again, there is a degree of homerism in my pick. So yeah, so, so with that, uh, we'll shift on down to the last game, quite possibly the most exciting game of the lot. Green Bay at Dallas. Uh, I've taken Green Bay, Harry's taken Dallas, and Fitz has taken Green Bay. Uh, so I suppose, Harry, Dallas, uh, you've decided that they're going to stop this juggernaut. Yeah, kind of a gut feel pick as much as anything else, to be honest with you. Like, I just really, really like what we've seen from Dallas this season. They've been consistently probably the best team in the NFC over the whole season when, when, when you factor it in. And yeah, while you know Green Bay can hit those incredible highs, what you've got from Dallas this season is just a remarkable team unit. Um, you've got, I mean, like you'd say, oh yeah, Green Bay's O line isn't playing out of its mind. Bear in mind, Dallas's O line is is incredible. While we have got like Green Bay's strength basically on defense has been against the run, but they're going to be going up against a well rested unit that has been consistently the best run blocking unit in the league with an extremely talented running back behind it. One of the ways to beat Aaron Rodgers is just to not give him the ball that much. And I think that's what we're going to see from Dallas. I think we're going to see a very ground-heavy, short-passing attack designed to control the clock and designed to give Aaron Rodgers as little time to get into his rhythm, as little time on the ball as possible to force Green Bay's defense to tire out. And it is a defense you can tire out. We've seen that this season where Green Bay's defense has got tired and teams have run up ridiculous scores on them. And Dallas are a physical enough team on offense to do it. Defensively, yes, there are question marks, but they've been a very solid unit in general this season. They haven't allowed a huge amount of of, uh, of, of points to, to teams. So even if Rodgers is playing well, unless he's playing at his very, very top level, it's still going to be relatively difficult, uh, difficult for them to unpick them. There are still huge problems in the running game in Green Bay that have been covered up by the way Rodgers has been playing. But we saw it again last week that they struggled to establish an effective ground game. And that, I think, is going to rear its head again here. When I, when I, uh, I assess the team holistically, you're like, yes, one of these teams has Aaron Rodgers. And it's always very difficult to pick against Aaron Rodgers. But as a unit, Dallas have been... Really, really good. They've got a great running back. They've got a very promising young quarterback who's been playing very well this season. They have a great O-line. They have a keys of defense. In Des Bryant, they have a guy who is going to cause trouble. We saw like Green Bay weren't doing the best job of covering the Giants receivers. They were helped out by drops. They were helped out by some poor throws from Eli Manning as well. That might not. They might not get that kind of luxury uh, in this game. You forget, it's not just Des Bryant. Like guys like Cole Beasley, for example, if you leave them uncovered, those are guys who can get the ball in their hands and they can gash you. They can move the chains. Overall, I just think Dallas are, are when you consider the whole of the roster, a, a better team. And yes, of course, Aaron Rodgers can go crazy and might throw for 500 yards and five touchdowns and just take over the game. But barring that happening, I just think Dallas are too sold of a team to lose to a relatively flaky Green Bay that's been reliant on Rodgers pulling plays out of his ass week after week. Do you know what? I forgot how much I was not convinced by Green Bay beforehand. I'm Flip swapping. Cap. I'm swapping to Dallas in a big swap. In a big swap. <laughs> <laughs> so Fitz, why Green Bay? Like Dallas have been great. They are. Like, this is this is the classic kind of like consistency versus upside kind of like game. 
where like Green Bay, like they definitely have consistency issues. Like the right hand side of their defensive back is terrible, and Des Bryant could take advantage of that. The running game, although see my you know Christine Michael looked great when they brought him in, and now that Ty Montgomery's out, we might see a lot more of him. Uh, the running game could see a spark there. Uh, but yeah, it all comes down to Aaron Rodgers. Like I talked about this last week, I'll talk about it again. Like Aaron Rodgers has been absolute fire, and that offensive line is gets so much time, uh, like consistently that it's hard for him not to end up doing these kind of things. One of the most creative, one of the most visionary quarterbacks in the league, and is the best quarterback that we've probably seen in the last five years when he's on form. Uh, perhaps not the most consistent due to, to what we've seen over the last two seasons. So like, I'm going to take the high variance play. I'm going to take the upside play. I think like. Green Bay right now look like a team that can take on other any other team and beat them. And the Dallas Cowboys, to me, are about consistency. They're about running the ball. They're about doing all those things. And I think they'll do them well enough. But I think when it comes down to it in the clutch in the fourth quarter, Green Bay have the playmakers who can change the game instantly. Like, I think Ezekiel Elliott uh, can do that, but he's a running back. Like, a great running back versus a great quarterback, I'll take the great quarterback. And I think that game will still be relevant in the fourth quarter. And at that point, I'm going to take Aaron Rodgers. And I think they're going to sneak another classic, uh, hopefully. All these games can't be classic, but they sure do look like they could be at this point. Yeah, I'll be interested if that's the case. Uh, If you're, you know, high variance, Aaron Rodgers can do anything logic. Maintains through to your pick if there's a Seattle. No, not, not in Century League. What, <laughs> <laughs> um, not Jarrow World? <laughs> That's where the Hail Marys uh, turn into the other thing. Uh, <laughs> Hail Marys? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, no, I'm not going to lie. This was like a fucking brilliant. Well, with the exception of the New England yeah. game, this was like a brilliant slate of games. Yeah, it should be It should be good enough. I think, like, look, last week, I think we can all agree with it. I don't want to say disappointing because I don't think we expected that much from it, but it was it was about right. as bad as it could have been. Like, to be honest, I think we expected more out of the Giants game, but the score yeah. belies that it was that kind of game for the first half. It, uh, it was, it was, but even then, it wasn't a particularly fun game. Like, no. it, was, it wasn't like it was superb. Well, the Giants did play very well on defense. But there was a lot of sloppy offense going on in that game. Yeah, like well. I remember we were texting each other. It's going like, how are the how are the Giants not up by fourteen points already? Like, yeah. they should have been smashing it early on, and that should have been a much more exciting final section of the game. But hey, this one looks like it's going to be a uh, great crack altogether. So yeah, I suppose. Uh, any other plans for the rest of the week, lads? Well, nothing too exciting, but actually there's a couple of things I wanted to, to, to mention here, uh, football-related, mm. which is much more interesting to the listeners than my, than my life. Um, one of them is, is quite a nice heartwarming story that I, I just found out uh, earlier today, and the other is a fun fact. So the heartwarming story is obviously Deshaun Watson, who's a very uh, highly touted Clemson quarterback, franchise Clemson for winning the college football, whatever it's called these days, not the BCS championship. Warwick Dunn, the former uh, uh, Bucks and Falcons running back, I think, and uh, a known philanthropist, had a basically a, a foundation that does like, gives houses to sort of lower-income families. Apparently, um, Deshaun Watson's family was actually one of the families that uh, got a, oh, right. a house from, from Warwick Dunn's charity, which is a nice bit of sort of a cyclical whole circle coming absolutely which is, is, is very cool and that I thought it was just really nice and it's, it's, it's good because Warwick Dunn's kind of one of the sort of forgotten guys how much stuff he actually did for the community and when we see like yeah. like the Walter Payton Man of the Year is a fantastic initiative and the Bart Star Award but, the, but there are stuff. some of the ones like sometimes you see people on and you're like they don't do all that much at Bob all Brian Cushing is nominated for the Walter Payton <laughs> Man of the Year like, <laughs> <laughs> he's making the orphanage stronger by beating up yeah. the weak kids he just went and wedged you to the committee for seeing <laughs> until they nominated them but um, the other is a fun fact. So the All Pro uh, team came out uh, this week. We haven't we've got too much stuff to talk about to really discuss it in depth. Uh, every single team, bar one, had, <laughs> yeah. bar one had a player uh, 
to the All-Pro. Well, not to the All-Pro, but got a vote yeah. for a player on the All-Pro. Um, I, I guess your reaction, you know what the team is. Ronan, Ron, do you know what this is? No. Who T- take a guess. Take a guess. Like Cleveland is the obvious one. But no, Cleveland Cleveland got, yeah. uh, got votes. The San Francisco 49ers were the only team, uh, none of their players got a single vote in the All-Pro uh, selection. Which is just stunning. Yeah, Damning. I mean, like, look, look, the Rams got votes, the Browns got votes, <laughs> the Jags somehow oh, somebody gosh. voted for a Jags player. Not the Niners. Not like the Niners. that's just tragic. Sad times for the for them all. What about yourself? Fitz? any plans for the week? Uh, nothing too exciting. You know, just looking forward to looking forward to a good weekend of football. You know. Yeah, it should be good crack now. Just uh, settle in and watch Olympic Games. Be good crack. Yeah, there is a, there's there's a music festival thingy on around town. I might have a look at it on the weekend. They're doing a, it's called like Up and Comers or something in Whelan's. But what it is is they've selected like 60 or 70 bands, acts and stuff. And uh, they're doing it nice and cheapy as well just to give them exposure. So it's, I think it's a fiver a ticket per day. And then they're going to have like 15-ish bands on every day. Very so I might good. stick the head in one of the days to that. But yeah. Uh, Actually, that nothing too much planned apart from yeah, just bed in, get ready for football, fun times. Be good, It'll be good. Yeah, so those are that. Bye from myself. Bye from Harry. Bye. Bye from Roman. Bye. This has been all four quarters. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.